0: Hello, and welcome to Ask the Experts. I'm your host, Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is the interview show that is powered by you, our listeners, where I ask questions submitted by you to our guests, who are leaders in the field of anesthesiology. Now, as a reminder, you can submit a specific question for an upcoming guest, or just something more general for any future guests of the show. And we are always open to new suggestions about who our next guest should be. And to do that, you can contact us by email or on Twitter, at Anesthesia News, And the details for both of those will be in the episode notes. Now let's get to our interview with this episode's guest, Dr. Cheryl Gooden. Dr. Gooden is a pediatric anesthesiologist at Yale New Haven Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut, and she's an associate professor of anesthesiology and pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. She has also volunteered her time and expertise on several medical missions around the world. She has traveled to India, Peru, Nicaragua, Vietnam, Tanzania and China with various organizations to provide both medical attention to those in need as well as medical training for the local healthcare workers in those communities. Now without further ado, let's get to our interview with Dr. Gooden. The Anesthesiology News e-newsletter is a free resource from the most widely read publication for the specialty. Get the latest clinical news and multimedia content delivered right in your inbox Go to anesthesiologynews.com slash enews to sign up today. Okay, and welcome to the show, Dr. Gooden, and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And just before we get into the questions, um, and we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about, um, I just wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So I am an associate professor of anesthesiology and pediatrics at Yale School of Medicine and have been working at Yale New Haven Hospital for almost three years. For over two decades, I have been an anesthesiologist uh, with a longstanding interest in global health. For most of my career, I have worked in an academic practice. Although about five years ago, I worked in private practice uh, while editing a book, uh, the Pediatric Procedural Sedation Handbook. I am a native New Yorker. Um, My family migrated to the United States from the Caribbean. Uh, From an early age, uh, my parents instilled in me the importance of education and made a lot of sacrifices so that I could achieve the goal of obtaining a good education. I grew up in Queens, New York, and then moved to Philadelphia, where I attended the University of Pennsylvania as an undergraduate. I would say that probably one of the most memorable years of my education at the University of Pennsylvania uh, was in my junior year in this study abroad program in Spain, which was an amazing experience. Uh, Not only was I attending classes in Madrid, uh, one of them being an art history course at the Prado Museum, but I also had the opportunity to immerse myself into the Spanish culture. Uh, I lived with a Spanish family and uh, traveled every weekend throughout parts of Spain uh, with my classmates.
0: Wow, that that sounds amazing. (laughs) What an experience.
1: Oh, yes. I'll never forget it.
0: And you were there for your entire junior year?
1: I, I was there for a total of eight months. So what I did was I spent the summer. Uh, so I did uh, summer semester and then I did the fall semester. And then I returned back to Penn after the fall semester.
0: So you, you gave us some really interesting um, interesting uh, tidbits about your family and, and your upbringing. And I was just curious, you know, wh- which part of the Caribbean did your family come from?
1: Oh well my dad uh is from Jamaica and um my mom is from Trinidad.
0: Okay. And they they meet in New York City or Yes, oh, they okay.
1: met in uh New York City and uh I was born here, uh right in Manhattan and uh we lived in Queens and that's pretty much where I grew up um, you know, until I went off to Philadelphia and uh, went off to Penn.
0: Okay. Wow. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, that's uh, some serendipity to come from, you know, two different places and and meet in New York City. I feel like there's probably a lot of stories like that, though. (laughs)
1: Yeah, New York City is a pretty (laughs) cool place like that. It certainly is. I love it, I have to say. Yeah.
0: And have you moved back to New York City at any point in your life?
1: Yes. um, Actually, I have. um, You know, I was in Philadelphia, Um, for undergrad, then I actually came back and I did my pre-med courses at uh, New York University. And then I went back to Philadelphia um, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. My experience uh, in medical school.
0: Okay. Yeah. and no, that's a great segue. So I I always like to ask uh, anesthesiologists who are well established and, and are you know doing all these wonderful things in their career to take us back to the beginning and that moment when you first realized that you wanted to become an anesthesiologist. Could you tell us? You know, do you remember when that moment happened for you? Sure.
1: Honestly, I entered medical school uh, with no preset idea of what my career path would be in medicine. I, I was very much open to learning about all medical specialties. Of course, as time went along, I realized that I liked some specialties more than others. Uh, in fact, I made my decision to become an anesthesiologist late in my third year of medical school. Uh, I must share with you that one of my earlier rotations in my third year was actually pediatrics. And I must admit that for a while I thought I would become a pediatrician. Uh, I found that there were many areas within pediatrics that interested me, but let's fast forward uh, very close to the end of my third year of medical school when I finally did my anesthesiology rotation and I realized how much I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, I got inspired by some of the attendings that I was fortunate enough to work with on my rotation. And what I discovered was that I could combine the best of both worlds in my career path by becoming a pediatric anesthesiologist. Uh, I honestly have never looked back and I really love what I do.
0: That's great, and that, that is so interesting um, for the way you describe that happening, and, and how you get to your third year and, and realize that you wanted to, to you know, pursue anesthesiology as, as well as pediatrics and uh, and combine them. And I feel like I've heard that story. You know, I, I I've asked this question to a lot of our guests, and it always seems like it's it's almost right at the tail end of med school that you realize that anesthesiology is an option, and that you just oftentimes people just fall in love with it right away. And so it's, it's interesting. And it's nice that you were able to connect that with your other real, real big interest.
1: Yes, certainly. And, you know, anesthesiology, as many would say, is a well-kept secret in the sense that you may not find out about, uh, you know, that um, a specialty until... Later in your um, third year, or even early fourth year, for that matter. So uh, it, it's really cool, and I and I love it.
0: That's great. That's great. I f- I feel like a, a suggestion to med schools might be to move the uh, anesthesiology rotation to the very front of the line, just to make sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Get everyone. And I can. think
1: I think that's happening now more so than probably when I was in medical school, honestly.
0: That's great. We'll go ahead and get into the questions now. Um, So the first question we have for you is, can you talk about some of the challenges that you encounter with pediatric airway management?
1: Oh, certainly. Um, So there are a number of challenges that can be encountered with uh, pediatric airway management. Uh, I will give you a two-part answer to your question. First and foremost, uh, the biggest airway challenge is the difficult airway. And the difficult airway can present in one of two ways, as the unexpected difficult airway or the expected difficult airway. Uh, Of course, with the expected difficult airway, an anesthesiologist will have knowledge of the airway challenge uh, based on history or physical examination. The strategies that we use for managing the expected or the unexpected difficult airway are taken from the ASA, so the American Society of Anesthesiologists Difficult Airway Algorithm. Um, The second part of my answer to your question uh, is another airway challenge that most, if not all, anesthesiologists may encounter, and this is laryngospasm. Uh, a closure of the airway that can create a challenge uh, for ventilation. So while the occurrence of laryngospasm is not limited to children, uh, it is far more common in pediatric patients as compared to adults.
0: Just as a follow-up, could you describe the type of patients that you usually are are treating and and taking care of? Sure.
1: Sure. Yes, so I'm taking care of the youngest of the youngest, which could be hours old, uh, you know, a few days old, uh, all the way up to the age of uh, 21, more or less, um, that being in our children's hospital, and they come in with all sorts of um, medical histories uh, that we deal with. Uh, some are coming in for elective types of procedures. Uh, others may com- may be coming in for more emergent type pre- procedures, uh, emergencies, uh, the whole gamut.
0: Yeah. So we'll go on to question two. Looking at the 21st century, in your opinion, is there an airway device that you think has revolutionized airway management?
1: Well. So far in the 21st century, uh, if I had to choose one airway device uh, that has made a major impact on airway management, I would say that device is the video laryngoscope. Uh, I also think that is fair to point out that with the introduction of the video laryngoscope, which was in the early 2000s, more emphasis was placed on its use for the difficult airway. With all that said, I can tell you that in order to develop a proficiency with the use of any airway device, such as a video laryngoscope, it requires that you first learn how to use it in a normal airway. Uh, we often describe this time frame as the learning curve. The video laryngoscope is a great device for teaching a trainee the skills of intubation, Uh, Because a trainer can see exactly what they see by way of the display monitor and provide guidance uh, where needed. So although the video laryngoscope was initially seen as an airway device for difficult airway management, over time, uh, there were those of us who realized the utility of the video laryngoscope in our daily practice. Uh, and I would say the rest, I guess, is now history.
0: Right, for sure. You you talk about it as a teaching tool, um, too, and it's, it's a wonderful tool for getting information out there about cases. I mean, we have the Airway on Demand uh, series that we publish on Anesthesiology News with uh, your colleague, Dr. William Rosenblatt. And. That gives you a chance to see cases and see, in some cases, just like unique things that you don't normally see that you want to share um, that would be really hard to describe, I feel. Um, and and in, probably not very interesting, honestly, <laughs> without the video. So
1: Exactly. Yes, it's amazing. You know, having video, we're just able to capture these moments, these, um, you know, interesting cases, the airways that before uh, we just didn't. We could only describe them, you know, and describing is, is good, but there's nothing that compares to being able to actually see it. Having the ability um, for video laryngoscopy makes all the difference.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's that's, it's interesting to think back on and it hasn't been very long. So it's exciting to see what the future will hold too, I'm sure. Oh, yes. that wraps up round one actually so we'll go ahead and do questions uh in round two and round two for us um you know i I like to refer to it as questions that you wish people would ask you so so sometimes you just don't get a chance either because it's not as clinical as what you normally are working on or or um you just you know maybe don't have the opportunity to talk about it that you you know you would love to for someone to say hey you know tell me a little bit about this and and you could talk about it and I think, uh, Dr. Gooden, you have a really interesting um, couple of questions that we can ask you about in in this way, and you'll probably need to fill uh, me and the listeners in a little bit on your history here, but you've been doing um, medical missions since 2005, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And could you just tell us a little bit about how you got into that and and what what it actually means to, to be on a medical mission?
1: Sure. No, I'd love to do that. Well, I I think I'll share with you what I think is an interesting story as to how I became involved with my first medical mission trip. Uh, So back in 2004, I started looking for volunteer opportunities in global humanitarian outreach. I happened to go to the website of the Society for Pediatric Anesthesia And I found in their volunteer listings uh, the organization called Plasticos Foundation. Uh, They were looking for a pediatric anesthesiologist to join their group of 18 people um, that consisted of plastic surgeons, uh, operating room and recovery room nurses, uh, surgical technologists, and non medical staff. Uh, It sounded Uh, quite interesting to me so I decided to apply for the volunteer position and I can report that I was accepted. Uh, So I agreed to join their pediatric plastic surgery mission trip and in February of 2005 we went to Pune, India for two weeks. Uh, The majority of our cases were cleft lip and palate repairs. Um, The rest of our cases were reconstructive procedures, mainly for scarring uh, secondary to burns from kerosene. Um, Most of the children with burns had them in the area of their neck, and this eventually led to scarring with contractors, and the result was that they had difficult airways to intubate. Uh, So fortunately, I had brought along a GlideScope video laryngoscope, believe it or not. Okay. This is in Uh, 2005. In 2005, yes. And I have to report that I was one of the first um, pediatric anesthesiologists uh, to use the pediatric uh, GlideScope. Um, And I was fortunate enough, as I said, to take it along with me uh, on this trip. And this allowed for the successful intubation of all of the children with difficult airways there. Uh, Unfortunately, locally, uh, there was no equipment available for managing a difficult airway. So this was really an essential tool to take care of the kids uh, while I was there. Um, Although I have to add that back in 2005, uh, trying to clear airport customs with the video laryngoscope created some challenging moments, I'm sure yeah, <laughs> but it was it was well worth
0: it. that's fantastic, yeah that oh, what an opportunity to be able to do that and and to bring along the tools to be able to to successfully um, you know help all of those kids.
1: yes, and we wrapped up our trip um at the end of completing two weeks. Uh, with a day of uh, a symposium uh, in which the surgeons, nurses, and myself uh, gave presentations uh, to the local medical and nursing staff. Uh, I have to say this mission trip was such an amazing and rewarding experience, not only from a medical point of view, Uh, but it also provided the opportunity to meet new people and learn about another culture. Uh, This medical mission was the start of, I can report, many more to come.
0: How many more have you been on? and and Are they all to India, or do you go to other places as well?
1: I've gone to many other places since uh, India, I have to admit. Uh, I have um, been to Nicaragua twice. Uh, I have been to uh, Tanzania. Uh, I've been to Vietnam twice. Um, not too long ago, I went to China. And um, I, for the past 10 years, have been going to Peru on uh, medical mission trips.
0: So you've been all over the world?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, I have.
0: So how often do you, is this a once a year um, sort of mission that you go on or how often do you travel usually?
1: Okay, so I usually travel um, once a year uh, on a medical mission. Um, However, there have been a couple of times where I have been able to actually squeeze in two medical mission trips in a year, uh, just depending on what my schedule is like. But honestly, most years it is a one-year, one one trip per year.
0: Okay, and I guess I I have to ask because this is our our new – reality that we're in. How has the pandemic affected your ability to go on these trips?
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, without a doubt, uh, the COVID pandemic has put a pause on medical mission trips, and therefore has created a backlog of cases. Uh, I would have to say on a personal note, my last medical mission was in January of 2020. Um, In general, with regards to medical mission trips, uh, the pandemic has forced us to think outside the box. Uh, And as a result, it has caused us to pivot in our approach to education in the form of virtual teaching. And it has also allowed me to do a bit of tele-mentoring. Uh, Over the past 14 months, I have had the opportunity to discuss pediatric anesthesia topics with trainees abroad, Uh, and I have to say it's been working out quite well.
0: when you go to these places. I assume that you help as many uh, children as you're able to, but I'm, there's probably children you're just not able to help. Either it's too it's too extreme of a case for the tools that you have uh, at your disposal, or maybe it's just a, a time constraint. Um, you know, how, how are you able to kind of deal with that?
1: No, that's absolutely correct. And uh, I guess um, a good way to look at it is um, to discuss a little bit about what happens on screening day. Um, So for me, uh, screening day is really filled with uh, mixed emotions. Um, So let me set the stage for you for what screening day can be like. Uh, On the one hand, uh, there's a certain degree of excitement associated with the screening day as um, I think any of us can imagine. Uh, There are many families that arrive on Screening Day and have not only been awaiting the arrival of a medical team for perhaps months uh, or even longer, and in addition, quite possibly have traveled a great distance to get to the screening location. Uh, On Screening Day, it becomes obvious when you meet these families that they are excited to be there with the hope that you can help their child. Uh, At the same time, I'm excited by the possibility that I may be able to help their child in a way that can improve their quality of life. Um, But on the other hand, on screening day, I know that more families with children will show up than will be possible for us to schedule for surgery. Uh, At the end of screening day, I do become sad when it is time to inform families that their child will not be on our surgery list. Um, At the same time, uh, there are families that are excited, and I also share in their excitement to know that their child is on our surgery list. So to kind of answer your question, it's never easy for me to deal with not being able to provide care to all of the children that I meet on screening day. you know, I try to remind myself that I am making a difference in some of these children's lives, um, but it's just not possible for all of them, um, and that uh, unfortunately is the reality.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I can only imagine that that's uh, that's a very hard part about being there. And you know, I would just say it. it you know, from the outside, not being on these missions, you definitely are doing all this great work. And, and the alternative probably is that none of the kids would get help. Right. So I, you know, I, I guess it's, it's, it's hard that you can't provide it for everybody, but it's wonderful. And you, and you've been doing so many of these, you just imagine how many, how many lives you've touched over the years and all these mission trips that you've been on. So.
1: Yeah. It certainly brings me a lot of joy. I have to say.
0: So, you know, I want to get back to you talked about you've been going to Peru, and that's one of your most frequent destinations. Um, And could you just talk a little bit about what the focus of those trips um, is? Is it similar to the one that you went on in India, or are they different?
1: Uh, It's different, I would say. So uh, for the past 10 years, uh, I've been a volunteer with the organization Comedy Plus, and we make uh, annual mission trips to Peru. Uh, for comedy class, the focus of the medical mission trip is to provide surgical care to children with craniofacial abnormalities uh, and the education of local clinicians and trainees uh, to promote sustainability. So we really want to create the uh, ability for them to carry on. So meaning the local clinicians and trainees um, to gain uh, the experience, the knowledge, so that they can care for these patients, particularly after we leave. Um, the, the goal overall um, of Comedy Plus is to make a lasting difference in the lives of children, uh, while also bringing some laughter and hope to the children and their families. So aligning with this goal is a volunteer team uh, that consists of craniofacial surgeons, Uh, a neurosurgeon, uh, anesthesiologist, uh, surgical technologists, trainees, and clowns. (laughs) And yes, you did hear me say clowns. Actually, the clowns play an important role in the overall experience of the children and their families, especially during a potentially long wait on screening day. And I would say similar to uh, our medical team, the clowns will also continue to see the children uh, during their hospital stay. And I can say we're quite unique as a group, uh, the Comedy Plus, uh, in having uh, these clowns along. And I, I guess that kind of tells you how the, the name Comedy Plus um, evolved. Uh, so comedy from the clowns aspect and plus because it's plastic surgery.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a wonderful idea to bring the clowns along <laughs> and just to li- liven the mood for, for a lot of the people there. Um, oh, it does. W- what a it great idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you usually in, in pretty rural parts of Peru? And are you, you go to the same location every time or do you move around every year that you go?
1: Uh, no, we go to the same location, and uh, we're actually in Lima itself. Yeah, so it's kind of nice um, because you know over the years of going to the same location, it has allowed for some uh, lasting connections uh, with people there in Peru.
0: That's really interesting. So, have you, you know, could you talk about some of those connections that you've been able to make?
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I have developed a close friendship. Uh, with more than one of the Peruvian anesthesiologists uh, that I have the opportunity to work with uh, during the medical missions. And um, on occasion, they'll come to the United States and uh, they come to New York and uh, we connect here too when they come uh, to New York. So that's kind of nice. And in addition, uh, over the years, a number of families have returned on our screening day just so that our team can see how well their children are doing. These are children that we've taken care of in the past. Um, And uh, just getting to see those kids, uh, you know, they're growing up and they're looking great after having had their surgeries. Um, And it's just wonderful. And these are just uh, lasting connections that, you know, are, are wonderful and just give me a lot of joy.
0: Yeah, and you know, so, kind of listening to you talk about these and and obviously you've had such a wonderful experience over the years and all the different countries you've been able to travel to and especially being able to go back to the same part of Peru over and over again and make those connections I'm sure there are listeners who are hearing all this and wondering you know how can they get into this and get involved and could you talk a little bit about you know if someone is interested in pursuing this or or learning a little bit about it how they might go about doing so and, and potentially getting involved themselves
1: I would suggest looking at the websites of some of our anesthesia professional societies, uh, such as the American Society of Anesthesiologists or an anesthesia state society, and do a search for volunteer opportunities abroad. Once you have found organizations that provide volunteer opportunities, I would really recommend uh, doing your homework by researching uh, the organizations. Uh, You want to make sure that the mission of the organization uh, aligns with your interests. And once you've found an organization that seems like a good fit for you, then uh, request an application. And perhaps you as well may experience the satisfaction and rewards of a medical mission trip.
0: That's great, yeah, and uh, and I'm sure we'll, we'll be able to um, add links to the episode episode description so that people can see some of the places that you that you volunteered with and and do a little bit of their own research and and potentially uh, you know head down the same road that, that you have. Um, so that's that's really uh, great, and thank you so much for telling us about that. Yeah, so I guess that that uh, wraps up some of the questions I had. Is there any um, like maybe final tidbit about? Your, your years of doing medical missions that you'd like to share?
1: Uh, sure. Well, I, I think um, I'd like to talk a little bit, if, if we can, um, about m- my experience with the um, Orbis uh, Flying Eye Hospital um, because I think that's, it's quite unique. Um, and I'll tell you, so the Orbis Flying Eye Hospital is a MD-10 plane which is retrofitted with an operating room, a recovery room, a room for cleaning surgical equipment, and a classroom. So essentially, uh, as a volunteer, uh, which I've done um, to several locations with them, uh, including Vietnam, China, and Tanzania, uh, you'll meet the plane in whatever host country the plane is located at the time of your mission trip. Uh, during my medical mission experiences with Orbis, uh, part of my time has been spent providing anesthesia care to patients undergoing eye surgery on the plane, and the remainder of my time may be spent at a local, local hospital uh, doing the same thing. Uh, so, the experience with Orbis, I have to say, is amazing. Um, especially when you consider that you are helping in the corrective and restorative process of a person's eyesight. So I've been to Vietnam twice with them. Uh, I was actually in Hanoi the first time I went to Vietnam. And then when I made my second trip to Vietnam, it was in the Binh Dinh province, which was a lot more rural area. Uh, I've been to China. Uh, Yi, which is in the east coast of China. And uh, when I went to Tanzania with Orbis, I was actually in Dar es Dar Salaam.
0: So you get to travel a lot more broadly with that group, it sounds like, That's, which is probably interesting in, in, in its own way.
1: It is. Yes, you learn so much about people and the cultures. It's, it's, it's an amazing time.
0: We'll move on to our final couple questions. So has there been anything in the last uh, few months or year that has really stuck out to you or something you've really enjoyed uh, listening to or watching or reading?
1: I have to say that um, I have been enjoying uh, listening to podcasts on mindfulness meditation. Uh, I find them to be quite interesting and useful in bringing my attention uh, to the present moment. Uh, I think it has certainly helped, um, given all the stressors of the pandemic. Um, As I'm learning, there are different types of mindfulness practices. uh, And in my experience, I'm already seeing the benefits of incorporating uh, mindfulness meditation practice into my daily life. Um, It is something that uh, if you have not explored, um, it might be worth doing so.
0: So our last question is now um kind of you know, looking for inspiration and in, in into the future. And so has there been anything that you've come across lately that has really inspired you kind of along the lines of the mindful meditation that's kind of helped you keep going and, and stay focused on on the you know, the work that you're doing and, and things like that?
1: Yes. Uh I would say certainly of late. Uh I think that I've been inspired by the quotes of Maya Angelou. Um, There's one quote in particular that I like, and I think that it resonates with many of us. Um, And if it's okay with you, I'll share that. Absolutely. So uh, whatever you want to do, uh, if you want to be great at it, you have to love it and be able to make sacrifices for it. And I think that's something that we can all share and uh, know that is quite true. And I can certainly say that is the case in medicine. Uh, I think it's, you know, certainly in my mind, it's been worth the sacrifice. Uh, it's hard work. Um, but, you know, if you love it, uh, it's not really it's it's not really work. It's, uh, it's something that you can certainly enjoy and uh, enjoy for a very long time
0: that's great and thank you so much for sharing that Um, and that actually wraps up our time with you today Dr. Gooden I appreciate it so much thank you for joining us on the show and and for sharing all of these you know interesting uh, tidbits about your life and, and giving us a couple of nice recommendations here as well so thank you for coming on today
1: and thank you so much and thanks for having me
0: Thank you so much to Dr. Gooden for being our guest here on Ask the Experts, and thank you to all of you for joining us. And if you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review, because it helps others to discover the show as well, and we would really appreciate that. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Anesthesiology News Presents Ask the Experts was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kabak, Blake Dennis, Betty Zhang, Kristen Janet Cohn, Lucia Scanlon, Kwong Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Seinfeld. Ask the Experts is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Publishing Group.